Last year was a year that introduced us to a pandemic, closures, the absence of a lot of things that gave us comfort in life, home education, work at home, a lot of people losing employment. But in addition to all of the issues related to this pandemic, there was racial strife going on right here in our city of Minneapolis that not only made national, but international news. It seemed that everything was being politicized and there was a contested presidential election. You recall all of those things. And so it shouldn't be of, of a surprise to us to learn that one of the most frequently Googled questions all of last year, not only in the United States, but internationally, was the question, how do I find happiness? So I'm wondering how you would go about answering that question. What would it take to make you happy? 52,000 Americans were asked that question in a survey conducted by Psychology Today magazine. And uh, I want to share with you some of the answers that were given in response to that question. The most frequently given answer, friends. What would make you happy? Friends or an active social life? Well, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Here are the other things in order. A better job. Being in love. Recognition and success. A better sex life. A good financial situation. Better house or apartment. Being attractive or beautiful. Being in good health. Being in good physical shape living in a better city, getting more out of my religion, becoming a parent, and last, my partner's happiness. What I find interesting in response to all of this is that it seems as though most people desire to find happiness through external circumstances rather than through internal change. The popular idea seems to be that happiness depends upon having the right circumstances. When I graduate from school, I'll be happy. When I get married, I'll be happy. When we have kids, I'll be happy. When I buy the house of my dreams, I'll be happy. When the kids grow up and we're empty nesters, I'll be happy. When we hit retirement, I'll be happy. So it's as if the idea is that happiness depends upon the right circumstances. So is it wrong to want to be happy? Well, of course not. In fact, by way of introduction, let me share with you just some basic thoughts I have on the topic of happiness. One is this, the desire to be happy is a universal human experience. God created us with that longing in our hearts and lives. We all want to be happy. And so, no, it isn't certainly wrong for us to desire to be happy. Here's the second observation. So instead then of denying or resisting our longing to be happy as if it were wrong, what we really ought to do is to intensify the longing. We ought to feed it with whatever will provide us with the deepest, most enduring satisfaction. And if we were to do that, my third observation is this, we would discover that there is nothing in us or in the world that can possibly provide us with that kind of enduring happiness. Absolutely 
nothing. So it isn't wrong to seek personal happiness because we all do by creation. What's wrong is we don't long for it enough. We don't seek it with the kind of passion and intensity that we should. And so as a result, we continue to look for it in things that were never intended by God to ultimately provide it. And so we Google this question, you know, how do I find happiness? And we continue to look for it in the right circumstances. If instead we were to seek it with greater passion, we would discover it coming from what might initially appear to be a most unlikely source. And that drives us to the first matter that you see on your sermon outline, which is this. God's way to happiness depends upon having right circumstances? No, right attitudes. Today we begin a series on eight statements regarding this topic of happiness made by Jesus Christ as he begins this great sermon of his called the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5. This is how the chapter begins. Now when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, the traditional location as to where the sermon was preached is in northern Israel, way up by, well, actually the northern part of a large lake, similar in size, I guess, to Malax Lake here in Minnesota, called the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is on the north side. Valerie and I had the pleasure of touring Israel a few years ago, took some of these pictures that you see on the screen right now, give you an idea of what the geography of that area actually looks like. So this would be the area uh, of this message. Now, when it says here in our verse, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This is not referring to the 12 disciples, Matthew hasn't mentioned the 12 disciples yet in his gospel and really won't until we come to chapter 10. So this is referring, it says earlier, when he saw the crowd. So this is referring to a larger group of people who have some interest in Jesus and what he has to teach us. They're obviously very spiritually immature at this point, so Jesus is going to take this sermon in order to teach them about life in his kingdom. The first part of this sermon, Jesus will describe the character traits, the attitudes that mark kingdom citizens. And then based on that, in the rest of the sermon, he'll talk about character. I mean, excuse me, conduct, how citizens in his kingdom are supposed to conduct themselves. But you notice it's always character before conduct. It's character that fuels conduct. And so that's what Jesus will be emphasizing throughout this great Sermon on the Mount. Now you also notice here that it says Jesus sat down. This would be the typical posture of a teaching rabbi. The teacher would sit, Jesus is a rabbi, so the teacher would sit and the audience would stand. Now I don't know about you, but I want to be like Jesus. So how about for the next 30 minutes, I sit and you stand? Uh, no, that's probably not going to work, is it? But that would be the posture of, of the teacher back then. Now, in the verses that follow, 3 through 12, Jesus makes eight statements, which are oftentimes referred to as the Beatitudes. 
I find it very interesting that of all the topics he could have selected to begin his famous sermon, Jesus chooses to talk about this issue of happiness. Why? Because he's addressing a felt need. All of us desire to be happy, and he certainly knows that most of us don't go after it with enough passion, and therefore very few people seem to find it. This sermon says, look, if you really want to be happy, here's the way. Okay? Your search is over, because the type of person I'm going to be describing in these eight statements is alone the individual who really is happy. So we're going to come and take a look at these eight statements on how to be happy. Now, before reading these verses, let me share with you some other sort of observations about uh, all eight of these statements. You notice that each begins with the word blessed or blessed. It's an old English word and essentially means bliss, fortunate, happy. The Greek word makarios refers to a deep down inner happiness. I like what James Boyce, the commentator, says with regard to all of this. Here's a statement on the screen. The happiness of the world is a superficial happiness that depends upon circumstances. We've seen that. The happiness spoken of here, that is by Jesus, does not depend upon circumstances and fills the heart with joy. Now notice this last part. Even in the midst of the most depressing events. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of happiness I want. I'm sure you do too. So Jesus is going to tell us how it may be found. In fact, several Bible translations, J.B. Phillips' paraphrase, today's English version, are among those that substitute happy for blessed or blessed. So with that as sort of an introduction, I'm going to invite you to stand right now out of respect for the Bible. Let's stand together and give our attention to the reading of God's truth. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 3. Let's hear the word of God. Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here ends the reading of Scripture. You may be seated. Well, don't these statements sound like contradictions to you? Almost as if Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor. We go, really? You know, blessed are the sad, those who mourn. Huh? What's that about? Blessed are the hungry? Come on, you've got to be kidding. Well, it sounds like a recipe for misery to me. But of course, what Jesus is saying in each one of these statements is a countercultural statement. He's challenging existing ideas then as, as well as now. So that's the emphasis. Today, then, I want us to focus on the first of these attitudes, being poor in spirit. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, verse 3 says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
Well, let me begin with a big negative, what it does not mean. It's not referring to material poverty. I mean, we hear this word poor and automatically think of people who are destitute, the person who sits by the traffic light in Minneapolis, you know, looking for a handout. Well, certainly Jesus cared for the poor, and whether they're asylum refugees or not, he certainly cares enough for, to motivate us to care for the poor and to come alongside efforts to minister to the poor, right? That's something we should certainly do as, as Christ's followers. But here, he isn't talking about being economically poor or bankrupt. The idea comes from the Old Testament, where, yes, initially the word poor had to do with people who were in poverty situations. But gradually, that term came to refer to those who are poor in their hearts with regard to their relationship to God. Now, I mention that because some like to point out that in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is quoted as having said, blessed are you who are poor. And it's the idea that something, Jesus is making a sociological statement, and what he's doing is saying, Blessing the poor, why? Because in his kingdom, he's going to make them rich. He's going to make them so that they are disease-free and they are materially well-off. It's called a health-wealth gospel. It's an idea that is being proclaimed from a lot of churches in the United States, certainly an attitude that is gripping a lot of churches throughout Africa and even in South America. Friends, that's a false gospel. That's not anything about what Jesus means. Now, as evidence of that, one principle for Bible interpretation is that if you have two or more passages that are very similar, the more explicit statement always helps us to clarify the less explicit. So in this case, the less explicit would be Luke's version, blessed are you who are poor, the more explicit is this one here, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, indicating then that Jesus has in mind inward spiritual poverty, a condition of the heart, not of your wallet. Okay, so that's what Jesus is talking about, not a commendation of material poverty. Now, as further, further evidence of that, look at how the verse gets translated in other versions. So here we have, for example, the New Living Translation at the top. God blesses those, notice, who realize their need for him. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Realize their need for him. God's word. Blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually helpless. Contemporary English. God blesses those people who depend only on him. New Century. Those people who know that they have great spiritual needs are happy. So you see the pattern here? He's saying, I recognize I'm inadequate to figure out life by myself without God. Without him in my life as the center, I am spiritually poor. I can't make it. So a good verse to help us to understand this statement by Jesus would be Psalm 146, verse 5. Here it is. The Lord God blesses everyone who trusts him and depends upon him. 
So this is the first condition for happiness in your life. You've got to trust Him and depend upon Him. If you do, you're happy. If you don't, you're not. All right? So let me give you a definition then of poor in spirit. This is what it means. I humbly depend on God instead of myself. Why? Because I know I'm totally lost without Him. So if I want God's blessing on my marriage, in my work, my studies, school, if I want His blessing, you know, in my finances or any other area of life, I've got to humbly depend on God instead of myself. Now that sounds nice. How do we do it? Well, that brings us to the second question. How do I, how do I actually do this? I want to share with you today four practical steps to take uh, from the Bible, which if you practice them will reveal that you are poor in spirit, which means you depend upon God rather than yourself. And God says, ah, that's the kind of woman, that's the kind of man or young person that I bless and that knows happiness. So let me encourage you to write these down. I'm going to give you a test at the end of the sermon today. No, I won't do that. But we will have an exercise. So I encourage you to write these down, okay? Four ways to express dependence on God. Number one, I depend on God's wisdom, not mine. Say, what does that mean? It means I listen to what God says to do, and I do what God says to do. Okay, that's in a nutshell what it means. Look at this proverb, 14.12. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Dead end. Yeah. Have you ever felt that something was just so right for you? I mean, you knew this relationship was so right, it felt so good, and so it led to a dating relationship. Maybe even the promise of marriage was there. But for whatever reason, you broke it off, or that other person did. And looking back now, you say to yourself, wow, was I ever fortunate. That never would have worked. Yeah. But it felt so good initially. Or with regard to employment, man, this is the perfect job for me. You get it? Six months into it, you're ready to quit. You know, it just bombs out. Or you decide to make a financial investment. I know this is where I should put my money. It's a sure winner. No, it ends up being a loser. So feelings lie. I mean, there are a lot of things in life that feel so right, but they turn out to be, you know, months later, so wrong. And you wonder, okay, what in the world was I thinking? I mean, how foolish was I? Will I ever recover from this? So there is a way that appears to be right, but it leads to a dead end. Now, by contrast, look at this proverb, chapter 3. In fact, Pastor Amy um, ended the service a couple weeks ago by quoting some of these verses in the closing prayer. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Notice, do not depend on your own understanding, not your wisdom, not your hunches, not your feelings, because they can lead you astray. Seek his will in all you do. When it comes to time management and financial investments and relationships, I mean everything, he will direct your paths. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom, saying I've got it all figured out, I know what I'm doing. Instead, respect the Lord, turn your back on evil. So if I really want God's blessing, the first thing I need to do is depend upon his wisdom. Not my feelings, not what my Facebook friends say, 
not human reasoning. All right, so how do I access God's wisdom? Well, in two ways, prayer and reading. Prayer, that's you talking to God, and reading scripture, that's where God talks to you. So James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, it will be given to you. So all you have to do is ask. God wants you to make wise decisions concerning money management, concerning time use, concerning relationships, everything else. All you have to do is ask. So you're talking to God throughout the day. Lord, I'm about to go into the sales meeting. What do I do? How do I handle this? So Lord, I'm involved in this relationship. What do I do here? How, you know, what's the, what's the plan? So if you're not talking to God throughout the day with regard to these kinds of issues, studies, you're about to take an exam, whatever it may be for you, then you probably are depending on your own wisdom and not what he has to say. So you're spending time in prayer, but you're also reading his word. You're following a regular Bible reading plan. Are you? I hope you are. You say, well, where do I begin? I mean, the Bible is a big book. Well, um, if you're not sure where to begin, you can select a gospel like Mark that gives you an overview of the life of Jesus. Or I picked up these out in the lobby. Wouldn't you know it? This one says an Old Testament in one year reading plan. There you go. Or City Church, New Testament in one year reading plan. There you go. So if you're not sure where to begin, Pick one of those up and begin at least someplace. Now, why? why Scripture? Because God's wisdom and God's will are to be found in God's Word. So that's the starting point. I depend upon God's wisdom, not mine. Secondly, to be happy, I need to depend on God's strength, not mine. Your strength to face the pressures and problems of daily life is limited. Have you come to that conclusion in a pandemic world that your strength is limited? I've had parents say to me, Rich, I'm just worn out, totally worn out. I need a break, but I can't have one. Maybe that's your situation. God's strength is unlimited. Yours is limited. God's strength is infinite. Yours is very finite. So I need to depend on God's strength. Now look at this Psalm 84.5. God, you bless all who depend on you for their strength. You know, we all go through dark times. In fact, maybe you're in one right now. You can't see your way forward and you need strength every single day. Having been a pastor for more than 50 years now, I mean, I've seen people in all kinds of painful circumstances where there has been suicide in the family, the death of an infant um, in, in the family. I mean, all kinds of divorce, kids that are dealing with drug issues. There isn't a whole lot I, I suspect I haven't seen over the last 50 years. Some people, when they go through dark times like this, end up just about cursing God. I mean, they're shaking their fist at him like, where were you when I needed you most? Of course, the reality is 
God never says you become my follower and you'll be protected from all of the difficulties and challenges of everyday life. Believer, unbeliever, we all go through dark times. There have been others that I've known who face similar kinds of situations, divorce and, and death and all kinds of economic hazards, you name it. But because they were depending on the strength of God to get them through it, they were able somehow to do that without denying their pain. And that's what I long for you. Well, the only way to do that, of course, is to, to depend on God and his strength. You don't depend on just God's wisdom to do the right thing. You depend on God's strength to do the right thing. Well, here's another great promise from Psalm 73. Psalmist comes toward the end of this psalm. He has just been lamenting the fact. He looks out over his fence and he sees the prosperity of his neighbor who is far from God. And he wonders, what in the world's going on here? I'm trying to be faithful and look at my life and look at it my neighbor's life by comparison. And he sees then the prosperity, he says, of the wicked. That's his phrase. But then he goes into the temple and it all kind of comes home to him. It begins to make sense to him. And he realizes that God has placed that person in a very slippery place in life. And so he comes to the end and here's his confession. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Yeah, everything in my life might fall apart. But God remains. He's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So I not only depend on God's wisdom, not mine, but God's strength, not mine. Thirdly, I depend on God's timing, not mine. Have you discovered that there are seasons to life, not just summer fall, winter, spring. But there is a season, for example, one season could be labeled waiting. While you're waiting, and this is the difficult part for us, God is working. Look at Psalm 31 with me here in verses 14 and following. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. So often we end up in God's waiting room. We're in a hurry that's what our culture says, immediate gratification. That's what it's all about. But God's blessing oftentimes comes to those who are waiting and trusting. Here's another promise, Psalm 60. I am the Lord, and when it is time, I will make these things happen quickly. So God is working in our lives. You know, I think of a couple that enter the process of adoption. And they thought, well, okay, after a few weeks, maybe a month or two, we're going to be parents. And it wasn't long before they got a call, we have a child for you. But then after a few days of beginning to bond with that child, the birth parents wanted the child back. And while that was a good thing for the birth parents, certainly for this couple, I mean, it was a bit devastating, as you can imagine. So they waited many more months which stretched into years, and it still wasn't happening to the point where they gave up all hope. But then it got to the point where they got a call saying, we have a child for you. Yeah, yeah, okay, here we go again. Be ready in two days. Well, that time it worked out. You see, a delay is not a, de a denial. We think God is saying no, but maybe God is just saying not yet. 
And while you are waiting, are you willing to trust me? Think of the story in the Bible of Abraham recorded in the mid-chapters of the book of Genesis where God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And through that son, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Well, years pass. No son. And so Abraham, with the counsel of his wife, decides to take matters into his own hands. And he gets a servant woman pregnant, Hagar, and she has a little boy named Ishmael. And and Abraham says, look, God, here's a miracle child. This is what you wanted, right? And of course, God says back something like, um, well, that's not the baby I had in mind for you. That's not my plan, Abraham. That's yours. So if we want God's blessing, we not only need to depend on his wisdom and strength, but his timing. Meanwhile, he's asking, are you willing to trust me? One more, I depend on God's faithfulness, not my efforts. As we've seen, to be poor in spirit essentially means realizing one's spiritual poverty before a holy God. So I see myself as bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God but my sin. There's an old song, some of you may remember, depending on how many years maybe you've been attending various churches, called Rock of Ages. You ever hear that song? There's a stanza in it, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That's the idea. So it's the opposite of spiritual pride and self-reliance in which we attempt to live in independence of God. No. Poverty of spirit is absolutely essential for your acceptance and salvation. So the big question here, I guess, is this. Have you come to a point in your spiritual journey where you're depending entirely on God for forgiveness and your relationship to him? Well, to help you find out, I want to give you a little test this morning. You may recall the story of the Apostle Paul. If we had gone to him, if we could somehow have interviewed him prior to his conversion and asked this man, this Apostle, um, Paul, in your pre-Christian days, did you have confidence regarding your relationship to God. He would said, well, of course I do. And if you would have followed that up with another question, what is the basis of your confidence? He would have said, well, I've, I've participated in God-ordained rituals. That's got to count for something. I've been very, very religious, v- devoted, zealous, and I have attempted to live an upright, moral, respectable life. So he would have talked about rituals, religion, respectability. Here he goes, Philippians 3. Look at this. If others have reason for confidence in their efforts, I have even more. For I was circumcised when I was eight days old. What's that? Ritual. Having been born into a purely, a pure-blooded Jewish family. What's more, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. What's that? Religion. And I obeyed the Jewish law so carefully that I was never accused of any fault. Respectability. So what happened? Look at this. I once thought all these things were so very important, but now I consider them worthless garbage because of what Christ has done. 
Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I no longer count on my own goodness or my ability to obey God's law, but I trust Christ to save me. That's recognition of spiritual poverty. So here's your test. Imagine it's judgment day, and you're standing before God, and he says, hey, Mike, Susan, whatever your name is, you know, why should I let you into my heaven? Since there's going to be a day of judgment, what do you plan on telling God? Well, maybe you'd start like Paul, talking about rituals. Maybe like me, you also were christened or baptized as an infant, and a little bit later, maybe in your adolescent years, pre-adolescent years, you were confirmed into a particular church. And you participated in the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, dozens of times. Well, if you come to see, like Paul, rituals count for nothing, nothing in terms of your relationship to God. Okay, how about religion? If you could somehow gather up in your mind every religious act you've ever participated in, every prayer you've ever offered, every cent you've ever given, every service you've ever attended, and somehow try to quantify all of that, bringing it together. Have you come to see, like Paul, that religion counts for nothing before God? Have you? How about living a respectable life? I mean, maybe like Paul, you've been trying to be kind and upright and all of these things, you know, be an honest individual, generous. Certainly it's better to have those qualities than their opposite. But have you come to realize that respectability counts for nothing before God? The only acceptable answer come judgment day is one that acknowledges now, in this life, your poverty of spirit and your need for a Savior. So is that you? Are you poor in spirit? Do you seek to depend upon God's wisdom, God's strength, God's timing, God's forgiveness? Well, what blessing is promised to those who are poor in spirit. Well, very quickly to mention this, the end of verse 3 says, for theirs, like theirs alone, only theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll get to talk about this in greater detail as we go through these Beatitudes. But just to quickly mention a couple of things. First of all, it, enjoy, it means enjoying the rule of God where we submit from our hearts, having been renewed by God's grace to the rule of Christ. And it also means ultimately entering the very presence of God. Friends, a day is coming when all of that is broken in this world. It's going to be transformed. And the kingdoms, the Bible says, the kingdoms of, of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he's going to reign forever. So, that's the first key to happiness. All right, now, here's what I'd like you to do. I hope you took some notes, wrote those four things down, because this is what I would invite you to do right now. Maybe there's one that kind of stands out of these four, something that especially needs your attention right now. I'd invite you to put a check mark by that or star it, underline it, whatever you need to do. For example, maybe it's the first one. I depend on God's wisdom, not mine. Well, do you? Do you talk to God throughout your day? And uh, reading his word, maybe that's the one you need to star. 
Or how about God's strength, not mine? Are you, are you doing that, walking in fellowship with him, depending on his strength? Or maybe it's about God's timing. Maybe you need to depend on God's forgiveness, not your efforts. Every year, on the 4th of July, our nation takes time to celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That's fine. But maybe today you need to make a declaration of dependence. Lord, I'm depending on you in all of these areas. And you'll be giving evidence that you are poor in spirit. And yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be inwardly happy in every area of our lives in spite of our outward circumstances. And so today we want to take this first step of learning to depend on you more. We want to depend on your wisdom all throughout this new week, your strength, particularly in dark times, your timing, waiting on you, not being impatient. So help us, Father, to trust you. We turn away also from our own self-efforts and confess our dependence on you for complete forgiveness. And we invite you to take up your rule in greater measure in our lives today and every day until we enter your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.